Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And to do something, say something, see something before anybody else, these are the things that confer a pleasure compared with other pleasures are tame and commonplace, other ecstasies, cheap and trivial, lifetimes of ecstasy crowded into a single moment. Mark Twain A Lock Shock A Fabulism Chapter 25 Dead on Impact "'Tis often said that time slows down in the instance before your death, but I think in this case it is rather that my thoughts speed up, fueled by adrenaline and the knowledge that each fleeting sensation and impression is among the last sacred flickers of fire in my skull. Life does indeed flash before my eyes, the entirety of my existence compressed into a few heartbeats, all my circuits flood with memories and fragmented thoughts. It is appalling to realize my brain was capable of this speed of computation all along, but I was lazy. I wasted my life away because I was so lazy." The little white enameled knights tilt forward and close in, short straight blades glittering in the harsh light. We are entirely encircled, outnumbered, all that. Oidel Kint's final bit of physical comedy had a profoundly off-key punchline, leaving us speechless, and most of the aconite can do little more than clutch brass tureens to their chests, waiting on their doom. Except a doughty few. The great Malm bellows and charges, depending on his armor to deflect their clattering blows. With great sweeps of his iron warhammer, he clears a quarter of the courtyard of the little knights, sending their broken bodies flying. Runk and Shertok fight as a team, wading into the melee back to back, their weapons whirling. They advance slowly toward the courtyard entrance. The dead maiden employs a whip and nets to ensnare the knights. Kaimul begins a chant, and the air cracks with their vanatic epistolomy, their unique invention that is half plasma, half charm. With a grand, lilting tone, Kaimul persuades the generating force of the knights itself, whatever it may be, to turn against them, shorting out all the little white carapaces nearby but that still leaves dozens, with more pouring through the portico every moment. I suddenly find myself at the fore, facing an advancing wall of knights. The cloud-watcher stands at my side, hands crackling with power. I smirk at him, just like the good old days, eh, Fen? Don't speak to me, you monster! With that, my former best friend snarls a passataic command and ignites the air before us, blowing the little knights back like toys. We advance together as yet more pour through. Rank and Shertok struggle to reach the portico, where they'd have a strategic chance of sealing off the assault. Mysim fights like a man possessed, bellowing curses and battering at their blades with his sword. Shertok swings a pair of maces that crumple the white helm 
sounds with unerring precision. Kong, Kong, and yet we are losing. The arches that ring the courtyard above darken with more little white knights. These hold barreled weapons pointed at us. With a wave of his hand, the Cloud Watcher knocks them from their perches as they open fire. We only see brief flashes from the mouths of their weapons before they are all tumbling away in a whirlwind of smoke. Yet more descend from the air to take their place. Laugh, Absim, for death stalks the courtyard. The Aconide are lost. Tosti evidently agrees, taking the opportunity to drink more soup. Seneca responds to the hostilities by anointing an amulet with oil. The palimpsest hides behind a column holding a pair of throwing daggers, as if those could do anything against enameled armor. Clarice squeals at the sight of another useless fighter, the thirteenth chieftain. He kicks at an advancing knight, and it lops his foot clean off. As blood gouts out, he screeches and falls back into Clarice's arms. Her eyes lock with mine. She is terrified and helpless. Good. I turn away. Oh, ho, all is not lost quite yet. Ketterflix, surrounded by a ring of them in the center of the courtyard, shouts in anger and regains his normal, gigantic dimensions, his clothing tearing away into rags as his golden skin is exposed. He launches into the sky as the knights shoot at him. The stunning impact of their little black missiles knocks him from his path, but at least he's drawn their fire. He rises, small explosions of gray smoke obscuring him. We've got to get out of here! Oswalden grabs my arm to pull me around, but instantly loses his grasp. He stands in front of me instead, his back heedlessly presented to an advancing trio of white knights. Sir Trop bellows incoherent words of rescue and crashes into them, silver shield gleaming, arms wide. Now! Oswalden holds up his metal stick and squints at it, encouraging it to greater output. The tiny star at its tip brightens. He lifts it to touch my skin. Thunk! The boy monk screams as a black bolt hits him in the chest, knocking him back before he can make contact. Blood stains his clavicle. Rhine squeals in dismay and collapses in grief to the floor, gathering him close. Another pair of bolts hit me and glance away. I stagger. The nerve. One nearly drew blood. I squint upward at the sky, filling with hovering nights. Oswalden pulls on his sister's collar and urges her to take his metal stick. Rhine stands. The tiny star blazes so brightly it dazzles. As black bolts lance into her from above, a fat arc of electricity touches my skin and flash. I squeeze my eyes open to find that nothing has changed. We are still in the courtyard. Oswalden and Rhine are still dying at my feet. Scores of little white knights are still charging in. Ketterflix howls in wild grief and claps the air. A golden nimbus detonates outward and clears the sky. The little knights tumble away, and none replace them. Ketterflix kneels beside Rhine, her lovely white gown tattered and spattered with gore. With infinite care, he stitches a lovely little temple of light in the air over her chest and imbues it with a pulse. 
The tiny building flashes in steady time, and soon her heaving chest settles into a regular expansion and contraction. Then he sets to work drawing fragments of metal from her flesh. Fascinating. But my attention is pulled away by cries from the door. Runk screams for support. Shertok can't be seen. Kaimul whips something invisible through the air and shears a clutch of knights in half. The great Malm wades in, followed by Trop and finally Tosti. The arches clear. The doorway holds. Our martial squad bangs metal against metal until there is no more metal to bang. The knights are nothing but smoking, twitching refuse at their feet. It is only then that I see the sky has dramatically changed. It is now a lurid sunset of purple and orange clouds, and the knights gain no more reinforcements. It can only mean one thing. Ha, Oswalden, we did it. We transported the entire castle this time, or a good fat chunk of it at least. Oswalden... Oi, Cataflex, leave off your ministrations there. Oswalden is yet dying. The clamor of battle soon ceases. Those who fought the least cheer the most. Tosti starts a prayer. The Cloud Watcher approaches Cataflex, who still bends over his mistress. Rhine has stabilized and looks at everyone with clear eyes. Jin, we have many wounded. Could you share your arts with them as well? Cataflex doesn't even look up. No. I see. Shurtok is carried toward us and laid beside Oswalden. He is sensible, but his left leg is a ruin, yet his ugly face remains implacable. Seneca hurries forward with his anointed amulet. Make way, make way, unbelievers, defilers, he sighs, rolling his eyes at an invisible sky god, then mutters a prayer in an ancient tongue. The amulet gleams with holy light. Once he places it against Oswalden's chest, the monk coughs up a black bolt as color miraculously returns to his cheeks. Shertok's leg is similarly saved. Seneca dips his black spade of a beard in a pious nod and addresses us all. Now maybe you unhoused souls will bow down before the supremacy of Asurpa's love and power, which is far greater— Yes, thank you very much, the dead maiden interrupts, hauling him away. Unnecessary bit of evangelism there at the end, but we can't argue with the results. Maybe we make sure to bring more of his kind next time. Oh, look, now he's saving the chieftain. You mean he stopped the bleeding, his foot still off. Why does the chieftain keep his foot? What does he expect to do with it? To him, it's probably sacred or something. Everything, apparently, is. Him and Seneca, but in opposing ways. They could have a grand theological debate. We could leave them here. Problem solved. What problem, Tosti? The man just saved us Walden's life. Do you think Seneca could bring back Oidel Kint? A long silence follows. Not to sound callous, but I believe it was the old fellow's time. Yes, I do agree. He had a good long life. And frankly, his head's off. Blood all round. I'd like to see his blasted usurper fix that. Then I'd be a believer. Always famished after a good walloping. Any more of that soup about? General Ronk? The Duke calls out from the entrance. 
Runk leaves Shirtalk's side and joins his lord. All of us who are able and willing follow. Through the courtyard entrance is a wide hall leading deeper into the castle, but now it only stretches nineteen paces or so before being neatly sheared off by our recent globe-spanning teleportation. By all the gods, what power! Why, if Oswalden and I could harness this force, then we could break empires in an instant. If we could only master its randomness... Now let's see what kind of boiling kettle we've landed in this time. I step to the edge and peer out into the settling gloom. Hmm. Our new location is unremarkable. As the fat orange sun sets, the flat tableland fades to purple and gray. Isolated trees with broad horizontal canopies stand in silhouette. It is arid and smells of a foreign dust. Too arid. All the moisture is drawn from me and I suddenly crackle like a dead leaf. My eyes sting. I pull a bit of cloth over my face. My lord. Rank points to our right. On the far horizon, a trio of creatures, as huge as any the Totopas summoned, lumber along, clustered tightly together. Phenomenal. Is this where the Light Eater was born? But these have different proportions. A single, giant, curving horn arcs backward over each one's head, flaring out. In our silence, we just barely sense the earth-shaking crump, crump of their tread. No sign of civilization marks the land. No trace of humans anywhere. What are we doing here? Tosti demands. This place suits us not at all. It has nothing we require. I just want to get back home. The goats need a milkin. The great Malm, when he speaks, has a surprisingly gentle voice for such a brute. We all want to get back home, Brunk answers. This is yet another crime, for which you will answer with your life, Grill. Me? How can you blame this on me? All right, never mind, I can see it. Rather, let's discuss whether the chieftain is in any form to continue on. Why, are you seriously proposing we leave him here? The palimpsest snorts a pinch of snuff and dabs at their nose. Oh, you are a monster. I have a better idea. Ryan turns on me gaze narrowing. Why don't we leave Absom here instead? A chorus of acclaim greets her idea. It is Oswalden who puts a stop to that nonsense. No, hang on, everyone. Think about it. We need his peculiar property to actually return home. What if we transport next into a forest fire or the depths of the sea? Without him, we shall be trapped there with no ability to move on. Sir Mintigore Trop drops a gauntlet onto the Cloud Watcher's shoulder and scans the horizon. Lord, I dislike this random madness. With your arts, can you not navigate us to a lockshock from here? Unsure, old friend. Let us take to the sky and see. Another golden cloud boils up from beneath us, and before we know it, we are aloft, rising from the dusty earth and the battered blue remains of the castle courtyard. It looks toy-like and forlorn from above. Explorers may someday come upon it 
lost here in the savannah, and wonder how such a random bit of one part of the world got all the way to this other part of the world. It shall be a mystery that will remain forever unsolved. We climb higher, chasing the departing sun. So this must be west. Therefore to our right is north. A lockshock is famously a land of the north. So if we head that way, we are bound to reach it, no? I open my mouth to ask such a question, but I know their responses will be nothing but abuse. For once I feel the acute need for a confidant among all this hostility. An ally, a friend. Oswalden, say, if we progress— Oh, stuff it, you hateful villain! I sigh, as expected. Land in all directions, my lord. No real landmarks to orient ourselves by. Runk turns away in disgust. Gah! If these two samples are representative of the wider world beyond a lock shock, then we've been wise to avoid it. I heartily agree, General. Tosti claps him on the back. Let us return to the land of Lumina, the land of Tinana and Iliamna. Let us return to- There! Like clockwork, the dead maiden interrupts his piety. A town, my lord, I think. Perhaps more. Doesn't look like much. Can't quite tell. Perhaps it's a big city, poorly lit. Or just a wee village with a few outposts. I can't see more than pools of darkness and a few lights. Hang on, they form a pattern. A great bullseye. A bullseye atop a low mountain. What kind of town is this? What use have we of a town? The thirteenth chieftain's voice is hollow, still mourning the loss of his foot. We need our own people, our own land. Let us journey on, Lord. Have none of you any curiosity at all? Oswaldin frowns at his peers. I mean, yes, the danger is one thing, but this may be our only opportunity to learn of life outside what we know. Think about it. Isn't that investigation itself worth doing? Silence greets his impassioned speech. No, seriously. I mean, I just nearly died back there, and I certainly have no desire to repeat the experience, but I'm still willing to encounter novelty. Are none of you in the slightest bit hungry to learn what these people might teach us? Not really, no. That's the Clarice I know, self-involved to the core. The Aconite all agree. They say we carry on. A lock, shock, ho. Kaimul uses their master of ceremonies voice, nearly winning the argument with the authority it possesses. But an even stronger point is made by the faint smell of goat stew wafting up from below. Perhaps we could just stop for a bit. It being supper time. In the interests of our curiosity. The cloud descends. From a bird's eye view. We hang suspended over the bull's-eye town. But it is not a town. It is an immensely fortified position, torches lighting the towers and gates and little else. The outermost wall must be a league in diameter, a circle entirely encompassing this treeless, solitary mountain. It is the lowest of the walls and the most shabbily built, but the next wall, closer in, is taller and stouter, 
and of the thirteen rings of walls I count as they scale up the mountain, that practice continues all the way up to the squat block of a stone battery at the summit, where dark figures flit into and out of view through arrow slits. Somewhere in there, people are dipping spoons into bowls. My lord, do we tarry? What if they eat it all? Yes, Runk answers for him. We do tarry. This is not a city putting itself to bed. They are on alert. For what, we do not know. Best not to wade in until we learn more. Why do none of them look up? Clarice laughs. Fools. Oswalden spins the rims of his spectacles. I think that must indicate the threat is land-based. They don't look up because the threat has never come from above, and by the construction of the walls and the dispensation of their defenses, it does appear they expect some kind of trouble, perhaps a lot of it. Yet there was no one we saw on our way here. It was dark. We weren't looking. Why is no one on the walls? They all hide within like cowards. Too dark to tell. You think they hide forces on the walls in the dark? I have no idea what to tell you. This place makes no sense at all. Where's the water? Where are the fields to feed them? Does everyone live in that ugly little block at the top? They truly are preparing for a siege, Runk observes. See, the main gate is going up. Horns sound, thin and wailing. I hope they sound defiant at ground level, because up here they sound like the pitiful wails of something weak that's about to die. There, Oswalden points to the south, and coming fast. Listen. The faintest hammering of the earth rises to us like a great earthquake. How frightful. A dark tide sweeps over the outer wall, and it buckles its torches winking out. Then a stunning blast of horns from the invaders in response, a wall of sound so intense it nearly shreds the cloud we stand upon. Several of the aconite clap hands to ears. That must have been thousands of horns, giant horns, giant lungs. Then they race directly beneath us and we see them. It is a whole herd of the massive creatures of the savannah, each as tall as twenty men. In shape, they most resemble oxen, with deep chests and trunks for legs, and that one curving horn reaching to the sky, blaring off-key. Why are they always in threes? Look, they carry platforms. I dare say there are figures on those platforms. Tiny people. Tinier than us? I cannot say. Tis too dark. They're making short work of that second wall. Now I can see, my lord, why the generals do not man these outer walls. They would merely get their soldiers trampled. But the walls themselves seem of little use. That first one did not dissuade the attackers at all. It hardly slowed them. Perhaps it normally does, but tonight is a major event. Perhaps when they are in small numbers they don't bother with the walls. Perhaps we're here to witness something that is uncommon. Or perhaps Lumina, in her infinite wisdom, wanted us to see it. Or perhaps this goes on every night and there are no gods here. Blasphemy! Lumina is both everywhere and nowhere. Asurpa is greater still. His love- Oh, your Asurpa can go love himself with his own- Seneca's eyes literally blaze and his shawl crackles with fire. You will respect the truest god or suffer his wrath. Oh, ho, oh, violence so quick. What happened to his love? 
You cannot gainsay Asurpa. He is the father, both jealous and cruel. Right, that kind of father. And he will not bear the disrespect of you with a face as pale as a fish. Are you calling me a fish? Intolerable. Gentlemen, please. Another wall of sound smashes into us, discordant and unbearable. The giant oxen scale the slope of the mountain with ease. They charge at the third wall, and it gives them little trouble. Up and over, and scrambling up the mount's apron. But their hooves spark against the sheer sides of the fourth wall. It is there that the incline steepens, and the walls look more stout, like they haven't been breached before. Aha, this will be the test of whether this is a nightly event or something a bit more special. The beasts crash against the fourth wall and bellow, their platforms rocking like boats in heavy seas. The tiny figures are busy, joining hands and pointing and crying out in faint voices. Somehow their words are heard and the oxen settle. The first rises onto its back legs and kicks at the top of the wall with its forehooves. The other two members of its trio also stand on their back legs to keep the platform they carry from tipping. Soon all the beasts beside the wall are standing upright, with those closest to the wall kicking stones from the top of it. How curious! The wall is well built but only joined, not mortared. The stones topple and breaches appear within moments. The beasts clamber through, onto the fifth wall. It is a tale as old as time. The nomadic raiders assault the walls of the settled folk. Yet in most cases these are farmers who fence the land and wring sustenance from it. Here it is just a walled outpost filled with active dark-skinned people who remain busy behind the arrow slits of their low bunker atop the peak. What in hellfire are they doing in there? Should we help them? Rank is sharpening his sword, removing the notches he gained fighting metallic enemies. Which ones? It galls me that there is already an implied preference here. Why, the city dwellers, of course, Tosti sniffs. Anything to relieve them of the pressure from these barbarians and their beasts. Barbarians, are they? Or are they instead the enslaved masses of the countryside here to finally overthrow their masters? I swing on them all. Or could they be invading to rescue their fair princess that the villains in this city kidnapped? Or... Point taken, the Cloud Watcher snaps. Now shut your mouth. I don't want to hear your wicked voice any more. Can none of us divine the true intentions of these attackers? The Aconite all look at each other. I snort. They glare at me. I shrug. The thirteenth chieftain raises his hands to the sky and begins a low chant, shaking bells. Then he listens. My ancestors, he eventually shares, favor the riders and their wild spirits. And Asurpa loves the defenders of this city. You may have saved my life, Brother Senecar, but none may gainsay my ancestors. Save Asurpa, and he embraces those who build, as should we. Nay, the riders. The defenders. The thirteenth chieftain slaps Seneca. Runk pulls them apart, cursing at them. I laugh. They all glare at me again. Can we not bind Absim's mouth or gag him somehow? Rhine wonders. 
It would fall right off, her brother replies. Just ignore him, the dead maiden says. And ignore this siege, my lord. I beg you, this is not our fight. We clearly can't tell who is on the side of right and justice. The hummingbird queen must miss you. She needs you back at Hierot with her. She needs you all by her side. Lord, Runk asks in a troubled voice, can you truly not find the way back home? I believe the power of your arts were limitless. What prevents you from magicking all of us back to a lockshock? The Cloud Watcher's face is closed, glum. I too believed my powers were limitless, old friend. But it turns out unknown skies do not accede so readily to my requests. The air itself does not know me here, and keeps rising from surprising quarters. I feel my way forward, as we all do. The beasts below are making short work of the sixth wall, and climbing up to the seventh. This one may be too tall to surmount. They evidently agree. At the base of the seventh wall they lift their mighty forefeet in unison and stamp them down again and again. Boom! Boom! Cracks begin to appear in the foundations of the mighty wall and spread along the stony ground. Within moments the seventh wall topples and beasts pour in. Astounding, they are making far faster progress than seemed possible. They cross the next open space at a crashing gallop and lumber to a halt before the eighth wall. This one stands at the crest of an intermediary slope before the mount levels off to a wide shoulder of brown grass and black stone. It seems odd to see such a bare mountain, there isn't any snow here. It is all too warm and dry. The eighth wall is masterfully engineered, a solid wall with no seams in it. We all fall silent to see how the beasts might attack it. One trio of beasts moves forward alone. A forefoot strikes the solid wall. Cracks spiderweb outward. Ah, it is merely a layer of plaster covering a wall of mortised granite. The plaster falls away, but the granite itself shows no sign of cracking. Tiny figures scramble from their platforms swinging between their three mounts and drop to the ground. They bear folded cloth or dark sacks. Gathering at the twelve feet of their sumter beasts, they coax them to lift their enormous hooves. Then they place the hooves inside these black bags and tie them off at the ankle. The beasts start to scale the wall. Amazing! Those bags contain some property so strong that their beasts can climb like flies. Their hooves stick with each step and must be pulled free, some gum or resin coating them. The horns that wail from the squat fortress at the top now have a note of panic in them. The blaring reply by the beasts is triumphant. They crest the eighth wall, the inner walls now available to them. But the occupants of the fortress have other plans. With ear-splitting, peals of thunder that sound like the cries of eagles, flames erupt from the top of the peak, of a scale to match the invading beasts— the curtain of flames resolves into giant birds made of fire, arrowing downward toward the invaders. They land with splashes of burning liquid, coating beast and man. Nasty business, that, 
The great mom sighs and leans on the pommel of his great sword like a staff. None for us. Let us move along, my lord. This terrible fight is not ours. A chorus of voices agree. We float higher as the shoulder of the mount burns, firebirds descending in a storm, but the beasts blast the air even louder, shredding the birds and dousing their fires with a shockwave. When the shockwave reaches us, it shreds Fen's golden cloud too. The sound is so sharp and loud it deafens us, knocking us into the air like seeds scattered on the wind. Ah, hell, here we go again. I begin to bounce downward once more. But the others plummet. Ketterflick swoops through the air past me, Rhine on one shoulder and Oswalden clinging to his back. My juddering view doesn't allow for a clear picture of what occurs next, but I see that the golden cloud reforms itself down and to my right, with brief flashes of light that mark the cloud watcher's efforts to retrieve the falling aconide. But one body lands on the burning ground before he can reach them. Ah, the great Malm, dead on impact. That's what he gets for speaking up. I'm not far above him. I seesaw downward, slapped and buffeted by the air, which drops me onto land consumed by an inferno. But the fire itself wants no part of me, and its tendrils lick at other fuel. I lie on the smoking ground, bruised and coughing and surrounded by burning beasts the size of castles. Flies buzz around me, but they are not immune to the heat and they perish in great numbers. Now that I am close to them, I can see that huge clouds of black flies surround the beasts and their riders. They must be attracted to the smell, which is profoundly offensive, and not at all improved by burning. I'd stand, but I can't really see the point in it. So instead I lie on my back and stare at the sky. Here comes Ketterflix, settling on the new golden cloud above. I can't count how many of the Aconite are left, but I'm fairly certain Mom was the only casualty. I laugh at how we are slowly being picked off, one by one, as we make our way back home. First was Oidelkind, then... No, the first was Lady Far. But was she a casualty? Hardly. She just abandoned us as soon as she could. As would I. A burning beast stumbles past, shorn from its trio and blasting its note in terror, and I fall into its shadow. Gouts of smoke cover me. Its bagged hoof suddenly appears and smashes down onto me. But the power of rejection is too strong even for a behemoth like this. It stumbles, crashing to the ground with an earth-shaking impact. There, making my presence felt for good or ill. Although I am mostly unharmed, the experience of having that enormous hoof drop on me gets me to my feet. Its resin coats everything around me, burning with black smoke. It runs from me, though, like oil. Even though I'm ostensibly unharmed, I don't want to go through that again if I can help it. Having a hoof the size of a house stamp me into the ground is a capital way to make an otherwise fearless man claustrophobic. I weave through the fire and smoke and burning mountains of flesh. Oh, if my imps could see me now, they'd regret ever leaving me. Now, where am I? 
Oh, yes, approaching the ninth wall. It looms ahead, higher and stouter still. Is there no man-sized door in this fortification anywhere? I cannot see on its dark and pitted surface any portal or gate or way through at all. Madness! Perhaps I'm at the back. If I depart the conflict, I can circle around and leave the invading force behind. On the far side, I can hopefully find a main gate. I begin walking. But it is quite a large mountain, and the progress is slow. I look above me. The golden cloud still hangs over the battle. Indecisive twits! Titillated by the carnage, though, I'm sure. Better off without them. I'm sure of it. I trudge away into the darkness. A trio of beasts has also fled the firestorm, and now they are looming close, gaining on me. There's no use trying to avoid such giants, so I turn and watch. But these do not trample me. They stop, surrounding me, the stench descending with the flies in a head-spinning miasma of offal. The wooden platform swings far above my head, the twelve columnar beast legs surrounding me like a sudden grove of trees. Creak! A square of light appears in the platform above, a hatch opening, a small dark man with a seamed face, decorated with bones, lancing his skin, gestures at me. He beckons with a hand and calls out in a clacking language. Are you offering me a ride? No, thanks, uh, but I'd rather smell fresh air if you don't mind. He gestures and speaks some more. Other heads appear around the edge of the platform, all looking down at me. I can hardly see them through the clouds of flies. Praise the hearts of the alien creeps who filled me with rejection, for the flies can't touch me. I wave at the dark people above and attempt to move on, anything to get away from that overpowering stink. Then his voice speaks words I recognize. En. Real. Huth. I stop. What's that? He says it again. Duke. Fen, real, hath. Then he beckons to me. What in bloody blazes? Yes, aha, I indeed, Fenril Hoth. I point at my own chest. Duke of Athabasca, that's me, indeed. You found me. He seems pleased. A chain ladder unrolls from his hatch, hanging down within reach of me. I laugh. I laugh and laugh some more. Oh, Fen, what scheme of yours have I stumbled into now? Unable to find your way home, my bony brown ass. You let us all here somehow, for your own unknown reasons. Well, don't just gape at me, you wretches. Help me up. Thanks for listening to A Lot Shock. Stay tuned every week for new episodes. Tell your friends and keep an eye out for other stories told here on The Unuseful Hour. <laughs>